are continuing a series uh, called Follow Me, and we are talking about discipleship. We're talking about what does it mean to be a Christian, and as a Christian, what does it mean to um, disciple and follow Jesus. Um, <clears throat> to be a Christian is to disciple. I've said that, I think, the last few weeks, right? We know that we are called not only to make disciples, but we are called to be discipling at the feet of Jesus. And so today I want to read a passage um, from Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 17. So if you have a Bible with you or on your phone and you want to open it up, Colossians 3, 1 through 17 is what we'll be reading and teaching through um, today. to the church in Colossae, and he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Today, I want to take the, the conversation from, yes, we know we need to make disciples. Yes, we know we're called. Yes, we know Jesus is Lord. And I want to take it past even the concept of that there's a great cost to it. And that it requires that we have power and weakness, which we talked about last week. And talk about the reality that most of us know all of those things. And yet we still feel sort of the gears seize up. In the most pivotal of moments... We feel as though we duck. We feel as though we miss the moment. We feel as though we don't have the courage to leap. And Paul, as he makes such a good point of doing in the entire book of Colossians, says to us, he says, look, here's my theme. I'm going to make it really clear. He starts the whole letter by this. He says, here's my theme. My theme is Jesus above everything else. If you don't remember what it's about, if you don't remember in the moment what you need to do, remember Jesus. Don't get out in the weeds, he says. The, the church of, in Colossae had gotten out in the weeds. They had had visiting teachers. They had had people that felt like they know what they're doing, proclaiming all of these rules and regulations. And they had thought, man, that sounds hard. And they got out in the weeds. And they got confused. It's like this. Some of us, as we live our life, uh, go through a move, right? We've all been through a move. And when you go through a move, 
Now, it's not always the case that the move is a move up. Sometimes the move feels like a move down. But when we are in a move up, right, when we're moving to a better place than we had before, we have this moment in which we have to pack all of the boxes. Like we have to get everything done. We actually have to do the move. And there's this crippling moment in that where we just get totally overwhelmed, right? We would almost rather not move because of the extent of the chaos that's going to happen, the extent of the boxes, the extent of all of the little pieces, all of the details. But here's what happens in that moment. If we, if we lost that to the point of where we just said, you know what, never mind, I don't want to move, right? It's just too much. I can't handle it. I don't even want to move anymore. Then we have forgotten the house we're moving to, right? We have forgotten and we're not motivated anymore. Now, imagine that that house is a mansion, and now imagine that that house was paid for, completely for you. As Christians, discipling in Jesus, when our gears are seized up, here's what we are doing. We are saying, there is a mansion. It's totally paid for. I just can't pack the boxes. I just can't do it. I can't pack the boxes. And I would propose that the reason we can't back the boxes is because we don't really fully understand. We're not seeing it. We're not getting it. We don't understand what's in front of us. And so what Paul does is he says, I get it. I know it, church in Colossae. He says, so let's start with Jesus. He says, let me remind you about Jesus. And so Colossians 1, if you want to scroll up to chapter 1, uh, verse 15, Paul has this incredible poem actually. It's, it's a poem. And he says this. It, he's talking about the preeminence of Christ. And he says, he is the image of the invisible God. See, Paul doesn't bury his lead, right? And any, any of you that study journalism, you know that there's sort of this pyramid, right? You take the most important point and you put it first, and then you get down to the details. Paul, like a good journalist, says, I'm going to create the most important point right at the beginning. I'm going to say this. He is literally the image of the invisible God. Like the God that created the whole universe. Everything we see from an invisible, untouchable, really unknowable, in some extent of the word, beyond our comprehension, God. Jesus is the image. He he is the representation in human form, as close as a human form can get, and we'll go into that more in a second, of God himself. He says the firstborn of all creation, meaning he has authority over all creation. It says, by, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, we've all normalized Jesus. You know what I mean by that? Normalized. Uh, here's how we normalize things. Great example. Um, we watch television, we watch a Netflix series, we watch whatever we're watching, and it's full of, of violence, right? Or horror, or sex, or romance, whatever it is. And it's like at a certain point, it just sort of doesn't really do it for you anymore, right? It's kind of like, well, that's not that original. That's not that exciting. I've seen that story before. I've seen that. And that's beautiful, but I've seen more beautiful pictures than that. Because we so inundate ourselves with a certain strand, with a certain thing that we're drawn in affection to, and then we begin to take it for granted, we begin to normalize it, we actually begin to feel that we deserve it, and then we begin to critique it and try and figure out how we can make it better, right? And that's what we do with Jesus. We say, I like this thing he's got. There's some good stuff in church. There's some good stuff in Jesus. There's some good stuff in the Bible. But I've been around the block, and I know it would make it just a little bit better. And Paul says, that's, that's just not how it works, period. That is not how it works. So he starts by saying, he is the image of the invisible God. The word he uses for image there in Greek is icon, E-I-K-O-N. But obviously, related to our word icon, right? I-C-O-N. 
And for the Greeks, this word icon and this word logos, right? We know the word, the word of God. In the beginning was the word, John says. The Greeks were always searching for the ultimate reason, like the kernel of existence. What is the reason that we're here? What is the foundation? What was it built on? What's the logic of the universe? And in fact, we're all after the logic of the universe. Our pursuit of science is to try and find the logic that underpins the universe. Our search of all philosophies, our search of all spiritualities is trying to figure it out. What is the reason? First of all, is there one? And if there is one, what is it? And he says, he is the reason. He is the image. He is the icon. He is the stamp that represents the very foundation that you can't see in visible human form. I was trying to think of what we think of when we think of ultimate reason. I thought of some of you Maybe this wasn't in your world, right? But I come and married into a big Star Trek family, right? And in Star Trek, in the original Star Trek, you had Captain Kirk, right? And you had Spock. Spock, the person of ultimate logic, right? The person of ultimate reason. And what was Spock kind of known for? He was known for sort of a cool, cold, collected comprehension, right? Emotion was his enemy. Right? He didn't understand emotion. He thought emotion ruined everything. And he always could figure things out through this sort of removal of emotion. But where Spock was devoid of warmth, where he was cold, where he had removed a component of that, Jesus is the opposite. Jesus that does things that are totally incomprehensible to a guy like Spock, right? They're, they're totally, they don't, they don't make logical sense. They have no visible sense of reason because for Jesus... There is a sense of reason that is invisible underneath what we can see. And so we, we think the ultimate reason is taking what we can see and adding it all up and figuring it all out. And Jesus and Paul says, you guys, you know that's not true because inside there's a part of you that yearns and you can't explain it. There is a spiritual reality. And he says, and it's not cold. The image, the icon of it is the warmest, most kind, most loving human being. He says, and I have good news. He reigns over all thrones and dominions. He is supreme. Everyone bows before him. It's, it's, it's as if this, as if Paul is saying, we view life like a puzzle. And we have, from a very young age, been raised to collect puzzle pieces, to put our life's puzzle together, right? And some of us are kind of in midlife, and we've got like half of it together. And we're not usually that happy with it, let's be honest. But we kind of see some parts of it are starting to gel. We go, okay, I got a good thing going, right? Some of us are at the end of our life, right? And when we look at the puzzle, there might be times where we say, I don't even know how I put this together. I don't don't even, I can't even explain how this happened, right? And some of us are at the very beginning of our life, and we're just figuring out how you even put the pieces together. And what Jesus is saying is, you think I'm a puzzle piece that you stick in, or a set of pieces that are pretty that you shove in there. And he says, you've got to set them all aside. I'm I'm the image on the box, I'm the, I'm the reason you're putting it together. You're making this. So if things don't fit, they're not supposed to fit because they don't make this. Let them go. Where do you go to learn? Where do you go to be filled? Where do you go to find out the mysteries and purposes of your life? Because Paul makes it really clear. He says, go to Jesus first. Go to him first. So Paul makes this point. Christ is greater than everyone. And then he continues and he says, Christ fulfills all who believe. Continues in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Which means above, before. For in him all the fullness of earth was pleased to dwell. Fulfilled pleased to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So it would be one thing to say that we have a God who is greater than us, but that would be of literally no use to us if that God hated us. We can believe that there is an almighty God out there, and we can also believe his wrath is on the earth, right? Or he's completely left it behind. But Paul says, no, there is an almighty God up there. The image of him was Jesus, the one who served the poor, 
the one who washed feet, the one who died for all of you, to reconcile you, to make things right again. He came in and solved that for you. And so what Paul is saying is he's like, he's saying this, he's saying we normalize him. And when we do that, when we normalize Jesus, we make him small and we make ourselves big. The only way Jesus intervenes is in his smallest ways, he shows that actually he's the biggest thing. And in his smallest ways, he shows us glimmers and pathways and truths to unity, to wisdom, to temperance to self-control. So, last week we said, sometimes we feel like it's a yard sale, right? Like, we found, we found grace in a yard sale. And it's so proclaimed from the pulpit that we can have it and that there is forgiveness of sins and that just believe and it's yours. That we've even normalized the grace of the cross. And Paul says, it is bigger than you. It's huge. Yes, he loves you. But because he loves you, you are in service to him. That it is the greatest mystery revealed. And therefore, it's the only thing to go after. Trust and have faith in it. I think oftentimes we feel as though we discovered Jesus and we get to figure out Jesus. And we've got it all turned around. Jesus has discovered us. And he is here to reclaim us. So we are not the center of our story. Our search for God and our search for meaning is not quite the right way to look at the sole purpose of our life. The sole purpose of our life is to say, God is searching for me. Am I going to come back to him? Am I going to let him pick me up? Or am I going to squawk the whole way? Am I going to fight and throw tantrums? Am I going to so take for granted his love that I, that I, never, that I never even try? And so, um, when we realize that he is totally fulfilling to us, and when we realize the fulfillment is because he has come for us, and in every way he has saved us, then we have to see that Christ beckons us, that in the saving of us, he has actually beckoned us to what I would call leap, right? And this is the call that he has called us. Now, I'm reading this book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, called The Cost of Discipleship. It's kind of, it's a heady book. It's really good. But he talks about this passage, Mark 2, uh, 14. He talks about Matthew, the tax collector, being called by Christ. And he reads the passage this way. He says, here's the passage. As he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. Now, I have done all kinds of explaining around these kind of passages. right? I've read commentators that say, well, maybe he knew him before and he'd heard some of his teachings and he was compelled. And at that moment, he decided... Bonhoeffer says, interestingly enough, the text is very silent on that. If that indeed happened, we are coming up with that argument out of complete silence. He says, all that we're given is that at the call, Levi the tax collector leaves all that he has, not because he believes that he might be doing something worthwhile, but simply for the sake of the call. Otherwise, he cannot follow in the steps of Jesus. And then he says this scathing, convicting remark. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. That if we are not saved by grace and thereby compelled to follow the one that saved us, we are actually normalizing Jesus. We're taking grace for granted and we are actually bucking the call. We are bucking his very nature. I've said this before, we're taking the gift, but we're disowning the giver. So that gets us to our text. So a lot of preamble, right, to get us to our text today of Colossians 3. But you'll see how this bubbles out of the text as Paul is talking. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's saying, if, if you believe, 
if you see that he is the visible nature of the invisible God, and if you see that he is totally fulfilling to you, then you have been raised with Christ. And then he says, Christ is calling you. He's beckoning you. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. So Paul gets very practical. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let's camp on those two verses. Where you have died, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. I picked this passage for this verse, you guys. I was just mulling over, what does it mean that my life is hidden with Christ and God? What on earth does that mean? Because Jesus has given all of the whys, Paul has explained all of the whys that Jesus exists. And now he's beginning to walk through the hows. And he's saying, Jesus has called you, he's beckoned you, and your life is hidden somewhere on the other side, right? Under him, beneath him, behind him, it's hidden there. Here's a great story to help us grapple with this. Peter is on a boat one night. He's left Jesus. Jesus is teaching late at night, and Peter and his disciples get on this boat, and they go across the Sea of Galilee. The winds pick up, right? They're there. Okay, in story form, when you're out in the, in the ocean or the sea at night, that is like a symbol that you are awash in mystery, Right? that nature and its forces have power over you. And, and Peter and the disciples have left Christ, their leader. He has said, go on. He has commanded. He has said, go on before me. I'll catch up. And they go across the lake, probably thinking, catch up? Like, what? But we follow Jesus. We do what Jesus says. And Jesus shows up, and they think it's a ghost. And Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, there's so much packed in here about the hidden life that we have in Christ. What has Peter done? First of all, he's obeyed those first few things. He said, Jesus, you are Lord. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me. He's got, he's got things framed correctly. He says, you are the almighty God. You command me. So command me to come to you on the water. Because anything you say can be done. So Peter's got a lot of things right here. And, and, and Jesus says, come. So Jesus commands him to come out on the water to him. And, and Peter gets out of the boat. I think most of us in our life, most of the time, are struggling. We're sitting on like the edge of the boat like, ah, uh -uh, not doing it. I, all of the things seem right. I, I even will call you Jesus. But you command me to come and, uh, like, we can't, just can't do it, can't get out. And Peter gets out of the boat. Christ beckons him to leap, and Peter leaps. Bonhoeffer also says, right, when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. What is Peter doing? Peter is saying, I'm going to jump into the dark see at night after what could be a ghost and the only thing that I know will save me from certain death is that I believe he is the Lord and I believe it so surely that I am willing to risk my life on it so when Christ calls us to come and die that's the kind of death that we're facing we know that normally that would kill us if it weren't for Jesus the life we're going to live would be useless potentially it may not have no significance in the grand scheme of things. It might be deeply uncomfortable. It might make no sense to people who don't see Jesus. Imagine, you don't see Jesus in the scenario. Guy in the middle of the night just jumping off boat. Zero sense. That would make no sense, right, Amelia? <laughs> this is the kind of stories that Jesus gives us because he has a purpose for this. He has a reason. He says, your dream... Your vision of heaven, 
as American, middle-class Americans, is to have a vision laid out for you of prosperity and wealth where everything's at least going to be okay. And as a Christian, you want to walk into a church and have a pastor stand up and tell you everything's going to be okay in your life. And even better, they sit down with you in counseling and say, this is what it's going to look like. Yep, make that decision. You're going to get here. And they just map it out for you. And you go, oh, finally, I feel comfortable. Thank you so much, Jesus. And instead, Bonhoeffer, Paul, Peter says, none of that. He says, I just give you Jesus. You walk in the doors of a church. You profess you're baptized. You get Jesus. And then you live your life towards Jesus. Which means you will sacrifice like Jesus. Which means you will serve like Jesus. See, the hidden component here in this double meaning, this word hidden, Paul is putting two meanings in this word. One that I've talked about, that it's sort of veiled, it's behind. You don't get there until you leap out. But there's another that he's going off of. He talks about, he's referencing in a way, the way that um, David in the Psalms talks about being hidden. In Psalm 27, verse 5 and 6, David in his song says this, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So Paul, Paul is saying this. He's saying it's hidden with Christ. Your life is completely in the shelter of the almighty God who is above all rulers and authorities. I give you Jesus because all you need is Jesus. The dream and heaven you're looking for is both hidden behind there and sheltered and protected by the very one who will call you to these extreme things. When Peter steps out in the water, what happens? He walks on water. So in a way, the hidden life we're striving for is not a life we have to so much worry about. right? Jesus says, do not be anxious. But yet so many of us are petrified of it. We're totally frozen by it. It's as, we've done, it's, it's as if we've done this. We've said, I'm a Christian. So we've checked a coat in the coat closet, right? We've said, all right, I'm, I'm a Christian. Yep, you've got it. Okay, good. I'm going in. And then they say, it's there. You go put it on. And you say, I, I ain't going to do it. I'm not going to go get it. And I've got it for you. It's fine. Come and put it on. No, I don't think you've got it. I don't think my life that I've checked in with you, I don't think I want it anymore, actually. I don't think I trust you. It's, it's hidden, and he's got it there for us. And we say, I don't want that. I gave it to you, but now I'm petrified and I'm unwilling to actually go and grab it. And I think in some ways Jesus is saying, when he says, ye of little faith, he's saying, you checked it in with me. Like, what's stopping? You suddenly don't trust me. You don't trust me to actually have it. You don't trust that it's actually, what I don't know, the same code. Like, what are, you, what are you thinking? Why are you so nervous about this? And then, and then Paul says this, he says, When Christ, who is your life, verse 4, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So he's saying, he's saying this, like he's saying this is both a gradual and an ultimate fulfillment. He's saying this both is, when you read this, you think the second coming, right? When Christ appears, then you will appear with him in glory. I think that's very true. That's absolutely true. But at the same time, I think when Christ appears in your life, you will be with Christ in glory. There is a gradual development in which we appear to be Christ-like, in which we act like Christ. It's like a radio transmission. And in our life, it's tuning in and out. There's static, there's noise, and then sometimes it comes in in perfect clarity. And he's saying, if you've got it on perfect clarity, why are you swift, switching it off to noise again? Why do you do that? Why are you still turning the dial? It had perfect clarity right there. He's saying, that's where I want you. I want you in a life that has perfect unity, perfect clarity. 
He said, spiritually, you're in the tent, right? David's like, I'm sheltered by your tent. I'm hidden in it. He says, spiritually, you're in the tent. So be in the tent in your life. And we say, oh, I was trying to be the tent, right? We say, I was trying to be the shelter for my life. I've got it all wrong. I've made myself big and God small. Do you believe? Jesus did not walk up to Levi and say, try it out. Try following me and see what you think. See if you like it. See if it feels nice. See if other people like it. See if it's affirming. He said, follow me. Right? I am Lord. To Peter, he said, come walk on the water. He didn't say, look around to the disciples behind you and see if there's a good enough vote. See if everybody's behind you and they think it's a good idea. He said, are you fixed on me? Follow me. Our discipleship to Jesus is a highly individual as well as a highly communal practice. It's individual in the sense that it requires the utmost focus for us. So Paul goes on, said he gets practical, right? Verse 5 through pretty much the rest of it, insanely practical. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil. He goes on and on of this list. He says, those things are what the wrath of God is coming for. He says, you once walked in them when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying I'm asking you to leap. I want you to focus. Burn everything that distracts you. Just burn it down. Get rid of it. If it distracts you from me, get it out of your life. Because we all know how this story goes, right? If we've been in church and heard the story, what happens? The wind kicks up. And Peter looks at the wind and he starts to sink. Because Peter, remember, Peter had everything right. He had all of the pieces set up the right way. He saw God as Lord. He saw Jesus as Lord and King. He, he asked him to come. He knew Jesus was searching for him, and he knew anything that he commanded him to do, he would be faithful to do. And yet, Peter still has not burned down everything that has distracted him. He has allowed himself to continue searching around in the puzzle. The message puts it this way. I quote the message occasionally as a paraphrase. I love the way Eugene Peterson can put it into a, just terms that we all get. In verse 3 and 4, he says, your old life is dead, your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ and God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, see, Peterson gets it. He knows what we're all dealing with. He, he passes the church. He gets it. He says, when Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on earth, you'll show up too, the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ was. Gosh. It's, Paul is just, Paul over and over does this. He says, stay on target. Stay focused. You said you wanted this, and now when you actually have to go do it, you want to bail out in every direction, and you don't make sense to any of the Christians around you who are trying to help you, and you don't make sense to anyone else in the world either. You're a mess. Because you got on board with something and you didn't count the cost. And when you get distracted by it, you are normalizing Jesus. You're removing him. You've, you've, you have no faith. You have no trust. Jesus was pulling Peter along in the water. It had absolutely nothing to do with Peter. He just followed. He just stepped out. goes on. He continues on these practical instructions. What he's doing is he's trying to free us up. He's trying to say, look, those things have all been put away. I'm going to give them just a little bit of time in the letter to remind you to not deal, like to just get rid of them. Because they're taking your time. They're taking your energy. They're distractions from the good you can do in the world. Randy Newman, not the composer Randy Newman. 
Randy Newman with C.S. Lewis Institute says this. He's talking about this very practically, I think, for college students. He says, self-control shouldn't be viewed as a limitation on freedom, but as a provision for freedom. And we know this, right? As people after simplicity in different ways and times, we know that when you get rid of things from your house, those things no longer preoccupy you because they're gone, right? He says, by saying no to a steady parade of lusts, passions, and temptations, we allow God to mold us into people who fulfill purposes for which we were created. Only by killing our flesh can we love others in selfless ways. Look, guys, we cannot deny ourselves for ourselves, but that's what religion does. Religion says, I am going to flog myself, and I am going to get better, and I am going to suffer so that I will be great someday, so that I will get the prize, so that I will be righteous, so that I will be better than all of you. We can only deny ourselves for somebody else. And we know this is true. We know that the fruit of self-denial is when we deny ourselves for another. And we see the beauty, we see the peace, we see the unity that that creates. Paul is saying, keep it simple. Baptism, faith is not an arrival, it's a beginning. It's like marriage. When you get married, you think this is the ultimate moment, some of us. This is the pinnacle. This is what it's all about. And then you get there, and the next day, now what? You maybe even already fought. Maybe you fought the very night you got married. And you're going, what on earth? I thought I had arrived. Right? Or we get out of college and we expect that first job to just come. And we expect it's just a career, the path is laid out. We expect to arrive. That's what happens with Christianity. We get into a church and we say, now that I'm in the church, it's all going to get better. Everybody's going to take care of me. And then people ignore you. People don't say hi to you. People don't make friends with you. They don't visit you. That can happen to us. And Paul says, first and foremost, you're getting so distracted because what you actually desired was affirmation. He says, you need to desire Jesus. The rest of this stuff will come and it will go because people are fallen and humans are broken, but Jesus is not. He says, get on board with what I'm about. And that is going to require denying certain parts of yourself. This game is not all about self-expression. Heard a pastor in town talk about why artists have such a hard time with Christianity. I thought it was very appropriate being one myself he, he said this he said artists are consumed and defined by the by self-expression everything about being an artist and i would say everything about a lot of us right it's all about how we express ourselves the images that we put out on our social media the things that we say the things that we do do we express something that's uniquely us that adds to the world that gives it something new and innovative and he says the reason Artists have such a hard time in the church is because Jesus is completely about self-denial. And so when ultimate self-expression comes in contact with ultimate self-denial, artists have an identity crisis. And so many of the rest of us have an identity crisis too where we say, ah, but what about me? And Jesus says, what about me? Right? He says, deny yourself. He says, to find your true self, the most beautiful version of yourself. Christian artist and musician Derek Webb used to be with a group back in, I think it was in the early 2000s, Caveman's Call. Um, he, does, he does solo work, and he did this album called The Mockingbird. And he said, they said, why did you choose the title The Mockingbird? He says, I try to communicate, if I try to communicate my own ideas, I'm going to screw that all up. And the best hope that I have is to simply reiterate, reorganize, and re-present the ideas that I've heard from others that I believe are true. And in the same way, that's what mockingbirds do. They hear the songs of other songbirds and they mimic those songs. Mockingbirds don't have their own original song. And in that way, these ideas on this record are not my own original ideas. I didn't come up with this stuff. Self-denial. He's saying, I'm nothing new. And yet, he creates a beautiful, go listen to this album, it's beautiful. The guy is so spot on to what it means to live in discipleship to Jesus. It doesn't have maybe your typical Christian platitudes. But it is a person living it out that has taken this in and is saying, I'm wrestling with how to do this. 
I think so many of us get really caught up in the cleaning house that we get to the point of redecorating, we have no idea what to do. We just want to purge it all out. We want to get rid of all the gross stuff. And then when it gets to the fun part of buying stuff, maybe we're just buying this and that off Amazon, whatever strikes our fancy. That's what our life is like, right? Our life is like this amalgamation of saying, I actually had no compass. Somebody told me I need to get rid of all the bad stuff. So here, I'm a righteous person and I'm still a mess. I'm so unfulfilled. I feel so empty. I've, got, I've done everything right. I've done all the hard work. I did everything you told me to do, and I feel miserable. Jesus tells this story. I don't know if you've found this story. This is a great story in Luke. Luke 11, verse 24. It talks about the return of an unclean spirit. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, the unclean spirit, all the bad, awful things that we do, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. I think we all know that feeling, right? And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. <laughs> so we clean house. But Jesus was and is not the center. He's not fulfilling us. He is not filling us full. So the house is empty. It's totally desolate. We're completely miserable. A whole bunch of evil spirits. Can we say, get on in here. I want company. Right? You fill your life back up with vices so quickly with all of these things that you really didn't want to do in the first place. You got rid of them. So quickly do you fall again. Because when it was emptied out, you were not spending time filling it back up with Jesus. He was not Lord and Savior. You were doing a religion. You were denying yourself for yourself. And at the end, you had yourself. And you didn't have Jesus. One of the things we practice here in our small groups is confession, right? We, we practice not in the Catholic sense, not in the you are absolved, I absolve you personally of your sins. But in saying to each other, I want to be held accountable. J.D. Berry has a commentary on Colossians, and he says this. He says, what should we put to death? Jesus didn't die so that we could go on sinning. Jesus died so we could be sinless. We all know what sins we struggle with, even if we have a hard time admitting them to ourselves. But we have to openly confess our sins to overcome them. Tell Christ what you struggle with. Tell a friend. Tell your spouse. Accountability works. And then let the Spirit work in you to free you of your sin. He says there is a, a component here in which we need to then take it out, clean the house, and put other people, set up guards, set up accountability. Create a community around yourself that is checking in with you and is holding you to fill it with Jesus. Whether that's people you connect with to study scripture, that's people you pray with regularly. You have set up foundations in your life where you will be missed where you are accountable to community. So it is individual, first of all, but there is a community support for it. And the beautiful thing is that when we are all around this concept, when we're all in this together, when we do this practical stuff together and we're seeking our hidden life and we are finding it protected and held by Jesus, it levels the playing field. Verse 11, Paul says, Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian." He's saying, here there's no difference in ethnicity, skin type, gender, social status, income level, because we're all after the same thing and we're all about the same thing. And that philosophy and that spiritual nature is continuous and congruent in all of our lives equally. Get after it. You're united. You are not uniform. You are never going to be exactly the same. But you are united. You are all on the same team. And he says... God doesn't just say, Jesus doesn't just say, don't harm your enemy, right? I talked about this last week. He says, love your enemy. It's, religion is not harming your enemy. Religion is saying, I'm going to deny myself. I want to hurt them, but I'm not going to hurt them. Jesus is loving your enemy. Saying, I'm going to deny myself and pour out and see somebody else that I think of as the least of these as Christ himself. Jesus, of course, talks about this. Going on this long discourse, the end time saying how he would never know a certain very religious people. He said, truly I say to you, as you did not do it, as you did it 
to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So to fill ourselves with Jesus is to see those around us in the company of Jesus, to see them in the image of Jesus. Paul knows this. And he's talking about community. He says, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. He's talking about perfect harmony. He's talking about total peace. All of the things we want that are only accomplished when we set our life down and pursue the life that is hidden behind him, sheltered behind him, that we must pass through him and take what he offers us. I'm going to close with this story. Uh, some of you in high school may have studied Homer's The Odyssey, right? It's a famous, legendary, ancient story. The concept of the Odyssey, we all use that word, right? It, it, is that it's a journey. What happens is Odysseus, the hero, has departed just after his son is born to his wife Penelope. His son's name is Telemachus and his wife's name is Penelope. And he, he departs because there is a Trojan war and he must, as a hero, go and fight in the battle to protect his people, to protect his family. And so he's gone for 20 years. He fights in the battle and then he goes on this epic pilgrimage that in some ways is a representation of all of our lives and the things that we encounter. They encounter cyclops and they encounter sirens, right, that call to them from the cliffs, wooing them to crash their boats into the, into the shores. All of these incredible archetypal stories. And what happens at the end of the story that I, I always felt like, felt like random and at, at odds with the whole story when I was young. I was in the adventure and the hero journey and all the exciting episodes. But he comes back and he finds Penelope, a crucial part of the story, a pinnacle of the story. And she is the very image of fidelity, of faithfulness, of trust. There is 108 suitors, 108 guys who want to marry her outside of her door. And she has been locked up in her room sewing and weaving this burial shroud for Odysseus's father. The whole time she has been, I don't have time for you, I'm weaving for my husband's father. She's been living in faith for 20 years, knowing that Odysseus will return to her. She has raised her son without his father for 20 years through childhood into being a man. And then when Odysseus returns, he returns and he's dressed up as a beggar because he also wants to know what his wife has done. He, he wants to know, does she see me? Does she remember me? And she challenges him to thread this bow that's like so hard to thread that he takes such strength and shoot it through this epic um, sort of target practice regime because she wants to know because she so knows him and she wants to see him and once she sees him they will be together again and it, and it taps into some deep, deep yearning that we have. Some deep sense of truth that we have. Homer was not a Christian, right? But so many of the stories that we study and that we learn have components of the gospel that are so deeply knit in them because the gospel underlies everything and parts of it can be found in so many stories. And in this story, we have the image of what we are called to, waiting for the return of our hero, waiting for him to come back for us. And in Penelope, we have the image of what that looks like. Imagine being in her shoes. Your, your, your husband has left. He's doing a brave and important thing. He's saving mankind, your civilization, your culture. But he doesn't come back. What do you do? Do you wait for 20 years? in fidelity and trust and faith, knowing that he is a hero, knowing that he will be true to his promise. Do you leap? Do you train up those around you and work to build up leaders in the image of the hero? The son is trained up to be the next leader, to be the next ruler. Do you leap like that? Do you take the time in which you are feeling like you're waiting and that God is never coming back and the earth is so broken, there's no way that this can ever make sense? Are you making good use of the time? Are you redeeming the days? 
Because remember, the days are evil. And they will distract you. But not Penelope. She leaps. She trains. She focuses every night weaving this tapestry, this shroud of who? The father of the one who has left her. Imagine in, in our minds, almighty God, she worships with him. She dwells there. She so knows the character that when he comes back, she can discern which of the 109 now is Odysseus. Imagine that. We are in a place where in Portland, as in anywhere else in the country, there are so many leaders proclaiming so many gospels. There are so many leaders falling that if we don't understand what the true church is, we will be done with church. If we don't understand what the true Jesus is, we will be done with Jesus. And so Paul says, you need to know. He says, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in you richly. Ponder it. Spend the night weaving over it. Tell other people you don't have time for their distractions because you're so focused on the return of your hero. He says, do this with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And there we have the kernel of what this whole life that we have is about. That if we are not coming to church on Sundays thankful, worshiping, in gratitude. That if we are not seeing God as bigger and worthy of our worship and so thankful that what he's done for us. That we have missed the whole point of his death and resurrection for us. Let's pray. God. thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you that it challenges us. I thank you that we can gather here together and worship you. God, this world is a, a messy place right now. We need you. We need you to give us coherency. We need you to help us fight the chaos. We need you to give us continuity right now, God. Help us to focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen.